Hi, this is Mo. And this is Sarah, and you're listening to the podcast Bird Shit. We started this podcast to share our love of birding with other enthusiastic birders in the world. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Bird Shit Podcast. They tried to keep us off the air, but we're back. No one tried to keep us off the air, by the way. No, but we did get some fan mail. Yeah, we did. Shout out to Deborah for sending us some fan mail and telling us all about the birds in San Diego, which sounds really nice because right now it's a blizzard in Maine. Yeah, and it's really cold in Michigan. Birdship podcast field trip to San Diego someday. Yeah, I want to see those parrots. Friends of Birdship Podcast, you are in for a treat. A few weeks ago, we got an email from a nice guy named Ryan who recognized our accents as being Michiganders, which was actually super impressive. (laughs) And also, I feel a little self-conscious about it now, but Ryan reached out to us with this really awesome project he's been working on called Important Bird Opera, and he aired his opera in the summer of 2019, and today he's here to tell us all about it, and it is it is really impressive. I don't know how else to say it. Like, when we first saw this, we were like, this is absolutely insane. Yeah. And then we watched it, and then we listened to it, and then we started emailing with Ryan more, and we're like, yep, this is something we're going to talk about on Birdship Podcast. Ryan Moritz is a producer, songwriter, and filmmaker based in New York. He has performed across the country, and his work has been shown internationally. He currently directs creative projects for the New York City Department of Housing Preservation and Development. Ryan's interest and passion for birds began at a young age, growing up among a family of naturalists in Colorado. He was motivated to become an active part of the broader birding community after living in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 2014. Shout out, Ann Arbor! Last time we were there... We did some unspeakables. You danced at Rick's before 9 p.m. You did too, because we were the only two people there. It was very easy to tell that we were dancing at Rick's at 9 p.m. So Yep, it was great. It's all right. Only one of us threw up outside my car. And only one of us had to not throw up outside your car. (laughs) Guess who? Guess who? This would actually be a fun guessing game. We should poll people on that. How about we not? It's all right. I threw up inside my car this past weekend, and it was not because I was having a good time. It's because I got food poisoned. So, spoiler, it still sucks. How's that a spoiler that you got food poisoned? I don't know. Maybe people were on the edge of their seats wondering when it was going to happen to me. That's true. I've been waiting. Years. Years, years, years. After all the times I saw you eat that gross spinach from a bag, I was like, she's getting food poisoned this time. But nope. Never did you in. Well, you tried to poison me more than one occasion, and you failed. Failed. I'm a terrible poisoner. Anyway, going back to Ryan. While Ryan was in Ann Arbor, he was introduced to abundant and diverse species of various important bird areas across the southeastern part of the state and began filming and recording birds. He also volunteered at the Leslie Science and Nature Center and helped take care of a great horned owl, which probably was the most cool experience of anyone's life. Yeah. For the next several years, he traveled across the hemisphere to spots in Texas, the Yucatan Peninsula, and Colombia, and developed a video and music project about birds, migration, and climate change, which we're going to talk about today. In the summer of 2019, he completed an artist residency with NYC Audubon Society on Governor's Island, which culminated with the debut performance of Important Bird Opera. In spring 2019, he monitored a red-tailed hawk nest in Brooklyn for the New York City Department of Parks and Rec and participated in Project Safe Flight to help birds migrate through the city by focusing on collision prevention and rescuing injured birds, which is an awesome, awesome project. I mean, it's all over the U.S., but it's really, really cool. And as an important note, his favorite birds are corvids, and he one day hopes to make a friend with a raven, which we are keeping our fingers crossed for him. 
Absolutely. If you're going to be a friend with a bird, make it a raven. Hell yeah. They're so sweet. Ryan, hey, thanks for joining us on Birdship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're super excited you reached out with your incredible Important Bird Opera project. Yes, I'm so thrilled that you want to talk to me about it and share it with your listeners. (laughs) We talk about everything here. You know that. (laughs) Well, first of all, as two Michiganders, Sarah and I both coming from the land of the mitten, we were really excited to hear that Ann Arbor, Michigan was where you first dove headfirst into the official birding world. What was it about Michigan that made you want to start birding? I lived in Michigan back in 2013, and I lived there for just a year. And I moved there from New York, where I currently live, because my partner got a teaching fellowship at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And I decided to tag along. And I didn't know what I was going to do. So when I first got there, I sort of worked some odd jobs. I started by picking apples at an orchard in Milan. Yeah. Which was so much fun. (laughs) Like, hands down, probably one of my favorite jobs I've ever done. That sounds like a dream. It was really cool, like waking up at sunrise and like riding out with the farmer on a tractor to go pick apples for the day. Oh my gosh. That's so wholesome. It was really wholesome. Could you just eat an apple whenever you wanted? Always. That's cool. And they were so delicious. Um, The Macintosh were were unreal. So I was doing some kind of odd jobs and I ultimately landed this video production job for a beauty manufacturer called TNG Worldwide. It's based outside of Detroit. So basically from my home in Ann Arbor, I was driving to my job every day. And sometimes I would take the highway, but that sort of got boring after a while. And I started taking the back roads through kind of rural suburban areas and just saw so many birds. And that really sparked this obsession for me. So it was like turkeys, turkey vultures, all kinds of songbirds. I would stop and like get out and film them. So that drive was really what sparked it for me. And then I just started to notice birds everywhere. Like in my backyard, we had so many birds. And I think coming from New York, we do have a lot of birds here. If you know where to look for them, like in Central Park and um, other parks around the city, but you don't often see them in your backyard. So I think that was really what kind of thrust them into like the forefront of my mind. After that, I sort of started digging into them more and learned about important bird areas, of which there are many in Michigan. It's a really important place for birds. Started to visit those and film birds. And then there's this place called Leslie Science and Nature Center in Ann Arbor. You uh, you know it. Yeah, I, um, I actually used to volunteer there too. Oh, really? Awesome. When I first discovered it, I was so floored I we, some friends took us there and we just walked from that park up to the cages and these birds are just outside in cages and I mean there was a bald eagle there were owls there were vultures that was like really a special place and I really enjoyed volunteering there what did you do I'm just curious I did more of their like program stuff I didn't okay. get to interact with the birds but Ann Arbor also has a unique bird care center called the Ann Arbor Songbird Sanctuary Um, And I volunteered there, too, where we took care of injured birds, which was super cool, especially because there were, like, 20 ducklings one day. They're so adorable. They had to be so loud. 20 ducklings. Oh, it was so loud. (laughs) (laughs) The bird that I stewarded was a great horned owl. I didn't spend that much time there. I think I only volunteered there for three or four months. It was in the spring of the year that I was there, but 
and she she didn't warm up to me very quickly. So every time I went into her cage, she would just sort of sit on her perch and hiss at me. And I'm like <laughs> sliding along the wall to like be as far away from her as possible. But it was really cool to be in that close proximity to such an amazing bird. So I've, um, oh, I bet. that was a really cool experience. You mentioned um, what kind of got you started being interested in birds, but you also mentioned your love of corvids. Um, were they your spark birds specifically, or did they evolve to be your favorite bird over time? I think so. I remember at a young age when I grew up in Colorado noticing a Stellar's Jay. We would go skiing in the mountains, and we went to this, we would always go eat at this one place that was full of Stellar's Jays. I remember feeding them chicken and being really surprised and interested in the fact that they were eating it. And so I think that was like one thing that sparked my fascination with birds. I mean, they were just so cool and smart. And I've since learned a lot more about corvids and, um, you know, all the, all the crazy things that crows and ravens can do and magpies. Later, my, I was visiting my dad in Canada, where he lived for some time. And he sort of adopted a raven there that came to them and wouldn't leave them alone. They named him Rocky because he observed my dad throwing the tennis ball for his dogs, which he would do every day out in their backyard. And this bird would pick up a stone and bring it to my dad for him to throw it. And he would throw it and the raven would bring it back. And they would play fetch, basically, with rock. What? Holy shit! Yeah. That's so cool! <laughs> I know. It was so amazing. I, I, I never met the bird, but this story was just so incredible to me. And ever since, I've wanted to adopt a raven. It got a little uncomfortable because the bird, they think that the bird was abandoned by its family because it was trying to latch onto them and it would try and get into their house. It was, like, oh. breaking screens and... And then it started to act out because they wouldn't let it inside. So, and I actually don't know how they got, how it like, they got rid of it, but it went away eventually. Oh Uh, man. Rejection's hard. It is hard. Yeah. I mean, I, if it were me, I definitely would have let it inside. I don't think my partner (laughs) would have been too happy about it, but. A hundred percent. I would have let it in my house. Right. I would have been like, this is our new family member. No one question it. No one would question it because you already have two cats and a dog. I know. know. All your pets would be like, don't worry. She's a good pet mom. (laughs) Don't worry. You'll gain 20 pounds in the first week. Yes. I'm sure it would love it. Oh, man. Wow. That's a crazy story, though. Rocky. Great name. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think my, my family are real outdoors people. And I think my grandparents especially, too, were kind of instilled this love for nature and birds in particular. So it's kind of always been in my family. I think that's probably how a lot of us get into birds is through family or other people we know who are birders and who love them. So, so yeah, it was really like going to Michigan and seeing all these birds that really kind of forced me into the world officially. Well, and it sounds like that's when you kind of started filming them a little bit too. So leading into that, we really want to talk to you about your most recent work, which was Important Bird Opera. For those of you who who aren't totally familiar, we're going to give you a little synopsis here. So the opera is told in three acts, southward, hiatus, and northward, and it's a blend of music, poetry, and video. Ryan, according to your website, you said 
quote, the story follows what we would consider a typical migratory path, exploring how climate change and other anthropocentric activities have altered the natural world, restructuring its biorhythms and latent organizations into a new and largely unknowable order. Now, just in case we haven't given this tale a proper introduction, can you give us an overview of the opera in your own words? Yes. Those were your words. They did come from your website. (laughs) (laughs) More words. More words. So as you said, it's an opera and primarily it's about birds, migration and climate change. It's about birds, but it's also sung by them. So the idea was that this opera would be about birds and they're sort of the stars and the singers of it. I composed the music digitally um, and then blended it with recorded bird song that I took over the course of the last five years. And the libretto of the opera is written by my sister-in-law on Julie Raza Kolb. It It like wants to be a real opera and that it's, you know, set in acts and there are singers, there's a libretto. So I sort of followed traditional model of what an opera is. So the three acts, it starts with Southward. And the first scene, we see Wisdom, who is the oldest known wild bird. She's a Lasian albatross. And we see just a static image of her. And so the beginning is sort of meant to evoke this timelessness of, you know, sort of birds and their habits and movements. As we know them today, birds have basically been stable in their migratory patterns since the end of the last ice age. So this shot was sort of meant to set the scene for understanding this sort of very lengthy history of bird migration. From there, we follow birds on their southward migration. So the next scene is I call moonlight migration, and it shows different birds migrating by moonlight. Some go only a few hundred miles, others travel many thousands of miles, so you sort of see the global scale of migration. So Act 2 describes the hiatus of this sort of non-wintering time. We see the sandhill crane, who's in this kind of unfamiliar and icy refuge, and it's like hollers at the sky in frustration that the world isn't what it um, normally expects on its migration. So we start to see some kind of changes related to climate change or a changing climate. There's another scene with an owl, which is actually one that I shot at Leslie Science and Nature Center. And we sort of go into its mind and see all of these sort of rhythms and kind of knowledge that birds have, which allows them to migrate these incredible distances. Then we see birds on the shore, and that's the moment at which um, this sort of conference happens and the and wisdom, the albatross, brings all the birds together to sort of figure out what they're going to do in response to this new world that they're forced to deal with. It would definitely be better if birds could solve that problem. <laughs> <laughs> they're trying to, I think. They're doing what they can. They sure are. <laughs> The last act is northward, and um, we see the birds begin to migrate back north to their breeding grounds. They're confronted with various dangers, and they end up back in their homes where they're raising their young, and they sort of realize that they have the answers to the challenges that they're seeking. So that's sort of like broadly what the structure of the opera is, or sort of loosely the story. I was partly inspired by a book by Scott Widensall, called Living on the Wind, which is a really beautifully written book about 
bird migration and it follows a similar structure where we like start with the southward migration, the hiatus, and then northward. I think it was a nice way to think about migration to be able to see it in those three different sections. That book was really inspiring to me. He actually wrote that bird migration is one of the truly unifying phenomena on the planet, which when I read it just like wow, blew my mind. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, birds are flying all over this planet all the time. And it's so incredible to think about what they can do. And having lived in Michigan, well, and even in Chicago for a while, and to be over a flyover area like that, every spring and every fall was like Christmas. Like, (laughs) it was just so unbelievable. It's so incredible to like, look up in the sky and you see these birds flying and migrating and we just have like a snapshot of one moment in time but you realize that they're flying for days on end without stopping and you know it's it puts into perspective some of the challenges that we face as humans when you realize that these birds are navigating by the power of their own bodies and doing this incredible feat on their own is really inspiring and fascinating to me too. I think, too, as people, we don't think about migration enough. I know, like, in Michigan, you see a robin in the spring, and you're like, oh, spring's here, the birds are back. And I don't think we focus enough on what they're doing while they're gone or that journey they have to take when they leave. Yeah, and that really inspired me to make this project, and it relates to the important bird areas in particular because those areas are really crucial for migrating birds who need you know, various stopovers on their journey. Some of the ones in Michigan, like they're are just outside of Michigan in um, Ohio, the Maggie Marsh, which is just like on the southern end of Lake Erie, that is a really important stopover for birds that are migrating northward. I wanted to tell the story through these places too, because when we think about bird conservation or environmental conservation more generally, it's really challenging because there are like so many places that are crucial for birds and it really, you have to have all of them in order for the birds to survive and be successful. Absolutely. And I know you had mentioned that a lot of the footage that you captured came from those important bird areas. Was it reading the book about migration and kind of reading more about migration as a whole that really helped you determine where you wanted to go and film the footage for this project? Or did it just kind of come about a little more naturally? Yeah, it did to start with. I think actually the first one that I went to go visit in earnest for this project was in the Maggie Marsh. I went there in the spring and filmed birds on that migration. Slowly after that, I started, um, you know, researching other birds and finding other places to go film them. And they often were important bird areas, although that wasn't a necessary criteria for where I shot. Sometimes they were sort of premeditated trips. Other times they were totally spontaneous or random. So the pelagic scene was actually shot from my iPhone when I was on a ferry going to Pele Island, actually also in Lake Erie. We love Point Pele. You do? Yeah. We went there this past spring. Amazing. It's so cool and weird, isn't it? It's so cool and weird. Well, we got there like a week after peak migration and we're like, oh, we missed all the birds. And then like, no, there were still a bajillion birds for us to see. And we stayed in a yurt, which was awesome. Amazing. We called it hurting for a yurt and <laughs> we were the only ones who thought it was funny. But <laughs> but um, I think that was really when we were, well, it was when we just started the podcast, but also when we were just kind of really seriously birding. And it was like the most mind blowing experience because we we're like, we have we know nothing about birds. Like that solidified no. it for us. <laughs> we were like, I know it's a yellow bird, it's gonna be a warbler, but right. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. 
it is crazy how important that bird area is for not only migration, but just in general, like what a small strip of land for how much activity passes through. I know, through. it's really amazing. Yeah. I guess shortly after that, I moved back to New York and filmed in the Jamaica Bay Wildlife Refuge, which is in Brooklyn. Mm. And that's a globally important bird area as well. And I had decided I was going to do this thing. And so I was making concerted efforts to film and record birds. I took a trip to New Mexico to see the Sandhill Crane in the Anahuac Wildlife Refuge, which was wow. such a stunning and beautiful place. I went to High Island in Texas to see the spring migration there, which was really incredible. And then some, I shot some in Florida too. Actually, I was just visiting my dad. He lives on this island in the winter and we were just out on kayaks and I filmed while we were out on the water. Not everywhere was, was shot in an important bird area, but they were either in one, in a national wildlife refuge, some sort of major preserve or like just adjacent to one. Speaking about your photography, compared to typical bird photography that we see, your footage generally feels a little bit more abstract and holistic. For example, you use really wide shots capturing flocks of birds in their environment rather than those close-up individual shots we're used to. Can you talk a little bit more about why you decided to capture birds this way? First, I was humbled when you mentioned holistic. I'm glad that it comes across that way. (laughs) I think I shot on a lot of different cameras, so there are definitely different types of shots. But there are these sort of wide shots of flocks, and I think I wanted to show the sheer numbers, or just to get this kind of global understanding of what birds do and and how migration works. But part of that was also just technical, and I sort of just started getting into birding, and I don't have the like crazy equipment that a lot of birders do. It's actually really hard to capture birds. And it's one thing to capture a bird by a photograph, but to actually film a bird, like a warbler up close is actually really challenging. So, so part of it was just dictated by like my own capacity. And like I mentioned before too, I mean, one of the shots was on my iPhone. So I really kind of depended on the, the scenario or the situation I was in, kind of how the shot ended up working. But I think like you mentioned, I mean, all together, the the scenes, I think, all work together. Well, even the fact that you said you filmed that one scene of the birds like flying from the ferry, that you shot that from your iPhone, that actually gives me a lot of hope from like an artistic standpoint. It's like you can still capture the beauty of birds with technology that you have on you all the time. Exactly. I found it alienating a little bit when I was in these birding places to see other birders with these amazing cameras and equipment and I didn't have that so I was like working with what I had (laughs) but you know you can do a lot with like a DSLR which is mostly what I shot and then some of the footage was shot on a professional camera that when I worked in Michigan I borrowed my camera that was in my studio at my job so yeah there's sort of a different lots of different types of shots but I think they all sort of work together in the end as like a a full piece. Absolutely and you had mentioned I don't know if it was to us or if he mentioned it in this interview as well, but that it took like five years to sort of build this project. At a certain point, it seems like the flip kind of switched, right? And you said like, all right, like this is the thing I'm going to do. But how soon did that flip switch? And like at what point (laughs) were you like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this thing or I'm just recording this for fun. Like how did the project kind of develop in that sense? I actually had the idea for this project while I was driving to my job in Michigan one day. And I remember texting my partner 
I texted the light bulb emoji and <laughs> wrote important bird opera, an opera about and sung by birds. And that for the longest time was like my, you know, one sentence about the project that I always said. I mean, important bird opera is even just a play on words for important bird area. Mm -hmm. So it started just from that kind of funny idea. And then I worked on it um, over the, the course of five years. And I mean, a lot of it had to do with the fact that I, you know, have to travel or, or wanted to travel to capture um, some of the birds that are that ended up being in the final piece, which, you know, takes time. And I've always had full time jobs. So this was sort of a labor of love that I was doing on the side, which mm -hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with. But yeah, I would say once that light bulb went off, I I knew what I wanted to do. And I wanted to write music and film birds and tell the story about migration and climate change. It's actually funny you say that because I, I mean, I'm in marketing. And when we were decided we wanted to do our podcast, I was like, over engineering the whole thing. And Sarah's like, let's just call it bird shit. And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll table that one. And then like, <laughs> I could not think of anything better. <laughs> it's such a good name. I know. I was like, all right, fine. Well, we'll go with bird shit. And then it's like, I love it. It's the best name. Often the, the simplest answers are the best ones. It's true. Mo is too. You were too heavy into it. You do it all the time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Getting into your opera a little bit more, um, you told us this subtitle text was written by your sister-in-law and Julia Raza Kolb. Yeah. Sarah's so good at pronouncing words. That's the only skill I bring. No, I am the naming. Oh yeah, and the naming. She's a poet and scholar, and her poem, Unflocked Heart, helps guide viewers through the digital opera. So can you give us a little bit more details about the nature of your collaboration on this? Probably about a year ago when I was getting close to putting all the pieces together for the opera um, and had started to work on the music, I knew that I needed to have a libretto. And in the back of my mind, I always wanted Julie to write it because she makes really beautiful poems. But she's also uh, an incredibly busy person and writes her own poetry and she also is writing books. And so I was always nervous to ask her because I had sort of built up in my mind that she was the one who was gonna do it. And actually the, the moment I finally asked her, we were swimming across a lake in Vermont um, I think it was my partner's birthday and we were, we decided, we went to the state park and we decided that we were going to swim across to the other side. And as we were swimming, I like chose that moment to ask her <laughs> and she didn't really have anywhere to go. So um, she couldn't avoid the question, but said she was honored that I asked her and of course she would. So I was just so thrilled because I knew that she understood where I was coming from and what I wanted the project to be about. And I mean, her words just add so much depth and complexity to the project that it definitely wouldn't have been the same without her. You know, we, we worked together on sort of developing the libretto and I don't know how this works in the normal opera world. I imagine it's probably similar, but you kind of have to develop both things in tandem because I sort of gave her the prompt about what the opera was going to be about. And then she then developed this poem. Um, and then afterward, I had to sort of work it into the existing footage that I had that I had shot and the music. So it was kind of a back and forth, um, sort of weaving these two things together over time. Once Julie delivered me this piece, Unflocked Heart, that was exactly how it entered the opera. And then it was sort of my job to figure out how it sort of got added to the footage and music. 
Wow, that's incredible. And I know you shared her work in its entirety with us, and it is really stunning. It's a really beautiful piece. She is really talented. (laughs) Yeah. And I think what I love about the piece so much is it's deeply personal. She wanted to write a piece about climate change. I think the whole piece in general, but a a lot of it is informed by the, the libretto, is it's sad, but it's also hopeful and which is how I think we both think about climate change anyway. I mean, it's like devastating to know what's going on on the planet, but you have to be hopeful about something. And we kind of saw the light somehow through these birds. I love also the way that she can like pull references from so many different places. And they're so like, you can talk about spiritual enlightenment and like finding truth. And then also talk about how Saturn has a tutu. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the right amount of playful, but then like there's parts of it that just hit you and you're like, holy crap. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and having talked to you a little bit about it too, it sounds like Kolb's poem took it as its starting point from the Sufi poet Farid Uddin Attar's poem, The Conference of the Birds. And just as a little bit of background for our listeners, Attar wrote this poem during the 12th century. And from what we've read about it, it is a poem centered around Sufism, which, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, is defined as a mystical Islamic belief and practice in which Muslims seek to find the truth of divine love and knowledge through a direct personal experience of God. Attar's allegorical poem, The Conference of Birds, describes the quest of the birds, or in this case, the Sufis, to find the mythical phoenix whom they wish to make their king or god. In the final scene of the poem, the birds approach the throne while studying their own reflections in the mirror-like countenance of the phoenix, only to realize that they and the phoenix are one. So we aren't experts on Islamic poetry, but as we're kind of understanding this, the journey that the birds take to meet the phoenix mirrors the journey of the Sufis that they make on their way to enlightenment. And when they finally reach enlightenment in their destination, the remaining birds discover that the divine ruler that they thought now lives inside each of them as a result of their own enlightenment. It's very... It's very meta. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it's a lot of stuff. It's pretty heavy to process, especially on Bird Chip Podcast. Uh, <laughs> but with this historical context, did, was this something that you had in mind or was Attar's allegorical poem, did that play into the creation of your opera as well? Like, it doesn't seem like a coincidence, I guess. It seems like it was all sort of building up to what you ended up creating. Right. I think when I first talked to Anjuli about the project and maybe it was when we were swimming across this lake the first thing that came to her mind was this poem the conference of the birds and it does parallel i think in a lot of ways migration but the story basically follows this group of birds who are searching for their god their or enlightenment and the hoopoe is able to get the birds to go on this journey they have to travel through seven valleys in each one symbolizes one part of their journey and at each moment there's a bird that sort of protests and refuses for some reason or like i'm um, you know various reasons depending on where they're going Um, but the hoopoe kind of encourages them and and gives them wisdom to sort of continue on to this journey and like you said ultimately they when they reach the end and they're searching for this mythical creature they realize that they are one with that creature or the sort of embodiment of spiritual enlightenment or truth. So yeah, I think, I mean, it, it didn't really inform the filming or anything, but I think the parallel was important to sort of bring this whole project together because 
we're making the parallel in some ways between this journey that these birds are taking to sort of find truth to the birds that are migrating all the time and searching for answers about, you know, how to survive in this world in face of all these challenges. And the answer ultimately is just themselves. You know, I don't think birds are like actively thinking about <laughs> climate change, you know, they're not like, this isn't a problem they're trying to solve, but the Corvids, maybe. The Corvids, maybe. Yeah, they actually are probably <laughs> aware. We've got some charts. But one conclusion you can draw about the, the opera is that we're, we are hopeful that birds can figure out how to adapt and change or not as a result of this changing moment we find ourselves in. And that is their own truth. And that's what they're trying to do. So we we have to trust that the birds know what they're doing and that they'll be able to survive. You know, it's meant to be an allegory. And so in some ways the opera is an allegory too. We're meant to kind of put ourselves in the position of the birds, which is also what Atar was meaning to do through this poem. The goal was sort of to, to give viewers the opportunity to imagine what it's like to be a bird and encountering all of these challenges, which will hopefully inspire people to care about birds and you know think about what we're doing to the planet and how it's changing so yeah absolutely so yeah speaking of which um in the poem she talks about how when the birds go through the valleys many of them will die and we know that through migration they face unknown dangers an increasingly chaotic world of in modern day a lot of which we cause so I know you guys have talked about climate change, but what roles do conservation and environmental awareness play for important bird opera? I think ultimately it comes down to these important bird areas and we sort of get snapshots of all of these beautiful places that birds are inhabiting throughout the opera. You know, these places are really vital for their survival and we have to protect them. So I think I wanted to share how amazing these places are and inspire all of us to to want to care about and protect them. That's what we're about. And it was cool. I mean, a lot of the places you captured are probably places that not everyone gets a chance to go to either. Yeah. And, and I think it's really easy to forget that, um, you know, the birds that I see in the spring have obviously been somewhere all winter and <laughs> I don't know where they've been. So <laughs> it's, it is kind of important from that, like that migration standpoint too, thinking about all the distance that those birds cover and where you know where do they go in South America? Like, right. what where do they go in Canada or Alaska? Like, who knows? So I think the fact that that your footage is able to cover such a wide range, and that the story kind of mirrors that journey, um, it feels bigger than just you know if, if we think about like the allegory being this this huge path to enlightenment, and you think about the scale of migration also being in a way like unfathomable. Uh, it's a really cool parallel. Yeah, and I think one of the ideas I was grappling with when I was creating this was that the scale of migration, like you said, is totally unfathomable. And like, how do you, how do you even begin to understand what it is that birds do? And in the same way, I think there's a parallel to climate change in that it's what is happening to the planet is totally unfathomable. We don't really know what's happening or how it's going to turn out. But as a result, I think there just isn't even the vocabulary to really engage with those concepts because they're so massive. Part of it was trying to bring those closer to our own like human experiences so we can understand them a little bit better. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, when Greta sailed across the ocean to come to the climate change conference, I was like, how many times have I just gotten in my car to drive to the store? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like she took six days to get here or whatever. And, you know, I'm complaining about having to drive through traffic across town. So mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah, that was a pretty inspiring journey, too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, she's amazing. I do want to hear more about developing the opera as a whole. So you talked a little about the collaboration, but how did this final project come together during your artist residency at the New York City Audubon Society? So the residency was really the thing that allowed me to put this project all together because I finally had dedicated time and space to work on it and also a deadline for myself. The residency... I started in June and then finished in the end of August with the final performance. And during that time, I was essentially pulling together and sort of finalizing all the different pieces that I had been working on over the course of the last five years. So editing all the footage, composing the music, pulling in the recorded bird song, and then finally marrying the libretto and the text to the visual element. It was like such a cool experience. Governor's Island is this place I'd never been to in New York, but it's an island in the New York Harbor that no one lives on, but um, it's sort of gone through various lives and it was a military outpost for a long time. Recently, it was turned over to New York City. And since then, the city's been kind of developing it into this arts hub. And my residence with the Audubon Society was in this 19th century house um, in a place called Nolan Park, where there's kind of a central green and there are all these houses around the green. They're all painted yellow. The body that manages the island gives them out to different arts organizations to sort of program throughout the year. So it's a really cool place. You just walk around. There are no cars allowed on the island and no one lives there. So it's a sort of very weird place. Do they have a ferry system then that like just transports people? There is a ferry, yeah. There are these funny buggies or surreys. Is that what they're called? They're like those, it's like a little bike you can like fit oh, yeah. six people on and yeah oh cool so there are those you can like rent bikes and people often bring their bikes to bike around the island but there are lots of birds and the Audubon Society does lots of tours there's a night heron <gasps> there yellow crown night heron love night herons mm -hmm. they're so cool of which there's there's only two breeding pairs in New York City and one of them is on Governor's Island <sighs> wow so you you gave the performance there. It, I couldn't tell from the photos, but it looks like, did you play the music live, like along with the video in the background? Yes. Damn. Cool. Yeah, so the, the performance happened outside. I basically staged it in between two of these houses. And so the, the film was projected on screen. And then I was sort of sitting in front, um, accompanying the piece basically live. And yeah, it was so cool. It was like the most perfect late summer night I think it started at eight o'clock and it was just like the perfect weather. Family and friends were there and I was so happy to finally share this thing that I had been working on for so long, which I sometimes felt like I was never going to finish or complete. <laughs> and it was just like all the stars aligned and it was just this really kind of magical moment. Oh, that's awesome. So now that your tiny little opera baby is out in the world, <laughs> thinking of the future, what impact do you hope this opera has on its viewers? I hope people enjoy it. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> First of all, I think my goal was 
to put people in the minds of birds or to allow um, the viewer to kind of enter in the, the body of a bird and feel what a bird might feel. I don't know if it allows people to get closer to birds or to be more excited by them or interested in them or learn about them. I mean, part of it was actually to show how amazing migration is and show some different migration patterns. But I think ultimately, I hoped to inspire other people to be just as fascinated with birds as I am. At the end of the opera, there's a, a short scene of a bee, which sort of is the preview for hopefully something that I'll be working on next. So I may turn my my interest onto the, the insect kingdom. That is amazing. I love bugs. Yeah. Bugs are awesome. <laughs> they do so many cool things too. Please do a project on bugs. Thank you. I, I, I want to. Wait, what's your light bulb emoji name so far? For I haven't project? even gotten there. Please tell me it's a bug's life. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would say it, Sarah. I like that title. <laughs> It's often the first thing you think of or the simplest one that sticks. So that's definitely going to be in my mind going forward. Oh, you made it stick, Sarah. (laughs) Yeah, true. Maybe it can be like, I don't know, one of the letters can be an emoji or something. (laughs) I I mean, I would love to work on another project, but I'm also still excited to be talking about the bird opera and um, obviously still fascinated by birds. So I'm still riding this wave a little bit and we'll see where that takes me. But hopefully the the inspiration will come naturally, I hope, at some point when it's ready. You inspired us. We loved Bird Opera. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, we had a good time watching it. And we we try to do as much research as we can before interviews, but we definitely did a lot more for this one. Because there was a lot to process. It's, I, I gotta be honest, like migration from like a, a bigger standpoint, instead of like, oh yeah, like the birds fly here and the birds fly there. It's like, no, there's like a lot of other things that happen. And I think you did a really great job capturing that and everything that you put together for Thank the important so bird opera. That means a lot. That was my goal. So it's great to hear, especially coming from you both who are um, bird, fellow bird people. And um, you know a lot about birds, obviously. So yeah, that means a lot. That's the best compliment we've ever gotten. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you both. Holy shit, Mo. That was so cool. Uh, Dude, yeah, that was incredible. I know when, when we first got that email, you and I were both kind of like, what is this important bird opera? And now I feel like I want to go learn everything about migration and I want to go visit all those cool places. I also want everyone to watch this. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it is a wonderful art piece. I think it's it makes you really think, like Ryan said, he wanted to put you in the perspective of birds. And I think it's definitely an art piece that does so really well. I loved it. I love birds. I love operas. I love important bird operas. We should have like a, a viewing party. We should just say like, everyone, eight o'clock, Saturday. I don't think my family would watch it. No offense. Oh, well, are they listening to the podcast anyway? No. Then they're not invited. Yeah, they're not invited. That's true. <laughs> they're not invited. You hear that family? You don't support me. You're not invited. <laughs> that is some hard love. <laughs> Anyway, if anyone wants to reach out to Ryan, you can visit him on his website. We'll make sure to put that in the podcast notes. Check out Important Bird Opera. It's a really great piece. It's about a half an hour long. I don't think that's something we talked about. It's not too much of a time investment. Yeah, and you can also stream the the music from Spotify. and You can listen to that on your commute. Be one with the birds as you're driving, like Ryan was when he first got into birds. And if you have any other questions you want to reach out to us, you can always find us on Instagram at Birdship Podcast or send us an email, hellobirdshit at gmail.com. 
Because guess what, guys? Some people send us emails. Yeah, we're getting emails now. You hear that? <laughs> what did I just do? Oh, no. What was that voice? <laughs> I think I tried to go newsy. Like, extra, extra. We're getting emails. <laughs> we're getting emails, you guys. I think it was more like if a newsie lived in Minnesota and never talked to anyone. And just discovered what email was. Extra, extra, there's something in my inbox. I'm going to text them from now on. I'm going to be like, extra, extra, sending an email. (laughs) Oh, gosh. And then you get like the night edition and be like, watch out, you got some spam. Your newsie is always evolving i feel like you started out like a newsie but now i feel like you're now i'm an infomercial newsie yeah yeah now you're an infomercial newsie yeah an info newsie well glad that we recorded this the people love us mm, Mm. mm. only the two Mm. people that sent us an email yeah we are tolerated (laughs) at best we are tolerated at best um but yeah keep your eyes to the skies and thanks for listening